Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, May 22nd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news, and today that means Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined today on the podcast by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Swai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. All right, guys. So we have like the whole team minus Peter here, and uh, it's Star Wars Day, basically. Um, so I, Vanity Fair published a, a huge cover story about the rise of Skywalker, and we've broken this down into several articles that you can find on SlashFilm.com. You can find all this stuff linked in the show notes of this episode as well. But I just wanted to sort of open up the floor, and uh, and we'll go through this piece by piece. Um, but there's a lot of information to get through here, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff. Some a bunch of stuff that we had no idea about and, and new information about this movie. So, uh, HT, let's start with you. You wrote an article called Everything We Learned from the New Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker Photos. What did we learn? And I know there's a lot there. Yeah, there is a lot. Um, so, first of all, we got introduced to several new characters played by Carrie Russell, uh, Richard E. Grant, and um, we, uh, we saw a few more looks of a new character played by Naomi Aki as well. But the first one, uh, Carrie Russell, is the most exciting because we learned her character's name, first of all, which is Zori Bliss, um, who's described as a scoundrel who frequents the thieves' quarter of Kimmy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, so it's we'll Kim- see how it actually gets pronounced later. It's Kimiji. Kimiji? Okay. You don't speak Star um, Wars HD? Come on. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, she is... Um, uh, we see her first look in costume. It's a sort of a dark purple suit that is a familiar familiar silhouette, not unlike that of um, bounty hunter Boba Fett, except she has some brass detailing on her belt and around her collar and uh, a much more um, elongated helmet, I guess you would say. So, uh, yeah, that's um, a very exciting first look at her. And uh, we don't know much about her character yet, uh, except that she is um, a, yeah, described as a scoundrel who... Uh, frequently um, uh, blends into the shady cantina or the thieves quarter of Kijimi. 
So Kajimi is a is a brand new planet, and this uh, this photo um, we didn't we don't have any of the Vanity Fair photos on slashfilm.com, but we'll link to the Vanity Fair stuff in this um, the show notes, so you guys can check those out if you somehow manage to miss them. They're all over the internet right now. Um, but uh, this is like a snowy planet. This is the first time we've seen this planet, right, HD? Yes. Okay. It's one of um, the few new planets that will be introduced in uh, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. The next one is Pisana, which is another desert planet um and that's the one that we've seen uh in some of the um behind the scenes shoots uh that they showed a star wars celebration this is the one that they shot um in uh jordan's legendary wadi rum valley um and uh, this is supposed to be um i think a site of a big battle because we see the um, characters played by john buega and naomi aki on um the back of these horse-like creatures called Orbax, uh, about to go into battle. And then there are also some aliens who are residents of this planet uh, called the Aki Aki. That's a very Star Wars sounding name. <laughs> it is. Uh, what else did we learn there? Um, well, we have a few other revelations, including that the Knights of Ren are back. We kind of knew that, but they are confirmed to be back. Uh, Vanity Fair had an interesting sort of tidbit that got corrected so it may not be true but um the knights of ren were presumably the scene in the trailer fighting with kylo ren but we don't know if that's confirmed to be the case Hmm. but uh that something that is suggested in the vanity fair piece and the other new character that i forgot to mention is richard e grant's new character uh allegiant general pride uh this is a character that fans have speculated would be uh the father of donald gleason's general hux but that has not yet been confirmed but they do share the same black sartorial fashion and dour expression so who knows um but they're shown in this photo to be at the deck of kylo ren's destroyer and it is confirmed that um Allegiant General Pride is uh, a commander of the First Order. And then there's also a photo of Luke Skywalker, right? Yes. Um, This is something that is uh, kind of putting the Star Wars fandom in a tizzy, but it might not be as it appears in the actual film, because these uh, photos are shot by Annie Leibovitz, who has frequently worked with uh, the Star Wars franchise in um, these big cover stories, but they aren't exactly uh, accurate representations of what happens in the film. But it does confirm that Luke Skywalker will be making an appearance in episode nine, whether it's a force ghost or memory or whatever. Um, But in this photo, we see him uh, next to R2-D2, of course, in his um, Last Jedi cloak, and with fires um, surrounding them in the back. So uh, that's um, that's the sort of tease that we get of Luke Skywalker's appearance. Uh, we'll, we'll see how he actually appears in the film. So in addition to uh, the veteran cast member of Mark Hamill uh, as, uh, as the old school character of Luke Skywalker, we also have another old school character returning to this franchise, although, of course, sadly, she, the, the actress is no longer with us, and that's Carrie Fisher. Uh, Chris, you wrote a piece about how this movie brings Leia back into the fold. What do we know? Right. So we already knew that uh, the rise of Skywalker was going to be using unused footage from um, The Force Awakens and maybe The Last Jedi of Carrie Fisher. And it just wasn't clear how much footage they were going to use, how they were going to use it, how much screen time her character was going to have. And while we still don't have definitive answers to that, uh, the Vanity Fear piece has J.J. Um, Abrams talking about how he went about 
re- you know, using this footage. And he reveals that, you know, it, it felt wrong, first of all, to not have Leia in the film at all, but it also felt wrong to have a digital version of the character. So what he did was he started going back and rewatching that unused footage and then started writing the script around that footage, which is interesting and also makes me a little nervous because it sounds like that he was like hampered by what he had and rather than not use it at all he changed the script so it would fit the character but hopefully it'll all turn out well but beyond that we know that based on this interview with abrams that the performance is entirely intact there's nothing digital going on here it's all actual carrie fisher um you know obviously there's some shots where There'll be close-ups using a stand-in or a body double, you know. But beyond that, everything every time you see Carrie Fisher in this movie, it's going to be actual footage of Carrie Fisher. And they even shot scenes to mimic the lighting that they used in the original in uh, the uh, the Force Awakens. So they they went to a lot of extremes to make sure this all lined up and doesn't look distracting, which is good because um, <laughs> when when I first heard this news, I was terrified it was going to end up like. Uh, the Sopranos where Tony Soprano's mom died and they like digitally put her head on someone else's body and it looked really creepy and weird. And thankfully they're, they're not doing something like that for this. Okay. Yeah. That is good to hear. And the idea of Abrams sort of being forced into a puzzle box of having to work backwards and figure all this stuff out. It's like, it's funny to me because he is like in our shoes almost like we're always the ones who are it's trying karma. to be yeah exactly speaking <laughs> um, of puzzle boxes i want to uh, jump back real quick because there's some confusion going on on the internet <clears throat> i think it's worth talking about here which is that the uh vanity fair piece has or two several of the pieces has updated two details uh one for which they issued a correction one for which they didn't and i think we should address those don't you think ben yeah 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 go ahead uh well the first one is that originally uh, one article ended talking about how in the trailer we see Kylo Ren directly battling members of the Knights of Ren. And if you go back and look at the trailer, he is battling a guy in a black cloak who looks an awful lot like him, which suggests that he's facing an uprising or suggests that uh, he has turned good and is facing his own people. And also one article uh, specifically said that uh, the Richard E. Grant character is Hux's father and then was updated to say that uh, it was rumored but hasn't been confirmed. So here's my question for the group here. Uh, is this a case of Vanity Fair, a major outlet, getting these details incorrect? Or is this a case of Vanity Fair breaking into that mystery box of J.J. Abrams just a little bit too much and getting slapped in the hand? <laughs> yeah, Brad, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it's, it's tough to say because they could have easily been going by what has been said on the internet before and making an assumption like they have before, but you would think with all the information they have that they wouldn't make such a mistake like that when they're putting brand new information out there for people to accept as fact. So I wonder if maybe there was a couple little details in here that they thought that they could include, but then they were told that they weren't allowed to afterwards, though it does seem odd that they blatantly like pointed out that they had to make a correction to the Knights of Ren article, but not for the General Hux one, because the General Hux one seems far more uh, innocent of a correction to make rather than the Knights of Ren one, uh, which could be considered a spoiler, um, depending on what it, what it means for Kylo Ren and the Knights of Ren. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm really not sure. It's it's very, very odd. Anybody else have any other thoughts about this? Lucasfilm got mad at them. I'd put money on it. <laughs> yeah, it sort, of, it sort of seems that way, but I don't know. I wonder if we'll ever get the, the real Let's story just... there. 
let this be a lesson, Lucasfilm. Give us the exclusives instead. <laughs> to hell with those vanity fair dorks. So we can yeah. actually run the photos. The, the camera on my iPhone is just as good as anything Annie Leibovitz has. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it should be noted. That hack. Um, Flashfilm did not run those photos in their entirety because we don't like being sued uh, by photographers who very carefully control their work for good reason. So great work, Miss Leibovitz. Uh, please don't sue us or our colleagues who made the mistake of running them. Yes, indeed. All right, so let's move on to the next thing. Uh, Brad, you wrote a piece called uh, Ray and Kylo Ren's Connection Runs Deeper Than We Thought. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's difficult to say. It's kind of uh, intentionally vague, but they there has been uh, an indication in this story from an unnamed source uh, that Kylo and Ray share some kind of connection uh, beyond you know, what we've seen so far in the movies. And that, that could mean... Uh, a variety of things. Uh, there have been some theories thinking that maybe Ray's parentage, um, as dictated by Kylo Ren and seemingly accepted by Ray, uh, wasn't really the truth, uh, and that maybe her parents will give her some kind of tie to the Skywalker bloodline. Um, there, you know, there's been talk of them sharing a more serious connection. Uh, with the Force, and that's the reason that they're able to, sort of to communicate so easily through the Force and uh, elevate uh, the manner in which the Force allows them to to have that connection to each other, seeing each other across the galaxy, uh, nearly touching in that scene in The Last Jedi before Luke uh, walks in on them. So the what's interesting, though, is that there's a lot that already connects these characters as far as their history is concerned. Um when, when Vanity Fair did interviews with Adam Driver and Daisy Ridley uh, to talk about their characters in this movie, both of them kind of touched upon the same kind of things in their characters' childhoods that are um, very similar. Uh, both of them kind of grew up without parents, but in different ways. Ray's parents have obviously been gone since she was very young, presumed to be uh, buried in a pauper's grave on Jakku. Meanwhile, uh, Kylo Ren's parents weren't really around much because they are kind of career heroes and that made him feel kind of neglected and alone and not really managed in the way maybe that he should have, which allowed him to turn to the dark side and be easily manipulated by Snoke, uh, despite even Luke, Luke teaching him. Mm -hmm. So, so both of them kind of have this, uh, kindred spirit connection to each other where they grew up the same and they, they each know what it's like to be alone. But the key difference comes in the fact that, uh, Ray has constantly been searching for a way to belong, and Kylo Ren keeps trying to distance himself from the people who, you know, actually do love him, and you know, essentially gave him his life. So there's uh, there's an interesting dichotomy and also similarity between these two characters um, that I think li links them in that way. But I feel like based on that piece of concept art that got released not too long ago, that's the cover of the art of uh, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker that the, the force connection between them is something that will keep growing and maybe uh, escalate to a, a much larger level in this movie. Jacob, do you think we're looking at a, a bloodline connection here, or do you think it's more general than that? Uh, if it's a bloodline connection, I riot. Um, <laughs> I, I do think that, uh, Abrams was setting up a bloodline connection in the original uh, Force Awakens. However, I think post-Last Jedi, I think we're looking at something different, and he's pivoting, but we shall see. All right, let's move on to uh, another really interesting uh, piece that HT wrote about how J.J. Uh, Abrams apparently, quote, went renegade when he was making this movie. HT, what does that mean within the context of a Star Wars film? 
Well, speaking of pivoting, um, J.J. Abrams' uh, The Force Awakens was beloved and acclaimed for, you know, walking that line between paying homage to the original trilogy and introducing a new generation of characters. But it is known for being more of a sort of nostalgia trip than um, anything that Ryan Johnson did with Last Jedi, which just kind of threw everything out the window. And... um, J.J. Abrams said in this Vanity Fair piece that he was actually somewhat inspired by or emboldened by Ryan Johnson's um, revolutionary approach and uh, basically said, um, quote, having seen what Ryan did made me approach this from place of instinct and gut. Um, I was making choices I knew I would not have made on seven, some story-wise, but more in terms of directing. And um, he talks about how he says, um, working on nine, I find myself approaching it slightly differently it felt slightly more renegade so it seems that he's taking a few more creative liberties and not finding himself uh, as beholden to the star wars franchise and the star wars um fandom as he was with episode seven which uh is uh, encouraging for those of us who were a little bit um hesitant about uh, Abrams coming back and maybe, you know, pulling back what Ryan Johnson did with Last Jedi. But here it seems that he is uh, testing his own limits a little bit more. Yeah, Chris, does that um, give you any more hope for this movie? I think you're probably the most hesitant among us uh, in terms of of episode nine even existing in this form. We'll we'll see. I, 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 look, no offense to J.J. Abrams, who seems like a really nice guy, but I, I picture his version of going rogue being like, I didn't wear socks today, like something really <laughs> nerdy and dorky. And it's not actually that roguish, but we'll see. I, I It's an encouraging quote to see him say that. And I sure hope the Internet doesn't read that because they'll be very angry. But <laughs> I look, I said this before, I'm going to see this movie no matter what. I really hope it turns out for the best. But I also really hope it's not like two hours of him retconning the last movie or else I'm going to be really depressed. <laughs> um, Brad, you wrote a piece uh, later this morning, or I guess earlier this morning, uh, later in the day, about how um, the revelations that we learned today have sort of uh, fleshed out some things that we saw in the teaser trailer. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, the uh, the Knights of Ren one was kind of a big one, but now we're uh, we're not exactly too sure about how uh, how that's going to, to play out. Um, but we do get to see, um, or I guess hope maybe theorize about some other things now that we know about new characters and new locations. Uh, for example, there's a shot in the trailer where you see a ship flying towards a uh, kind of a, a small city in the mountains that are covered with snow, and it's, it's at night. And now that we know that Carrie Russell's bounty hunter character uh, is has been on this uh, new planet, Kijimi, in the Thieves' Quarter... And we see what that looks like. Where, uh, where um, it kind of there's there's a link there that makes it possible that this ship, which looks a lot like the ship that left Ray behind on Jakku, has some kind of link to Zori Bliss. And by association, there's a chance Zori Bliss may know something uh, more about what happened to Ray's parents. Um, it's it's assumed uh, that something a little bit more will be revealed about her parentage in that past. And so maybe some questions will be answered with this character um, if that ship, you know, ends up in in her vicinity on that new planet. And I think there was some early speculation as soon as Carrie Russell was cast that she might be playing Ray's mother. So maybe that's a possibility too, right? 
it's it's definitely something that's possible. Um, you know, she's she's a character who's obviously trying to hide her identity. So if maybe she's raised mother and she faked her death and has been, you know, in hiding this whole time, that's that's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, one thing that we do, uh, or, or can, I guess, can more uh, assuredly hypothesize about. Um, is that the Knights of Ren are likely in pursuit of Finn and Poe, uh, Ray and Chewie and 3PO and BB-8 in that scene where we see them uh, partaking in like a skiff chase across the desert because there um, there is a behind-the-scenes photo of the Knights of Ren shooting uh, during the daytime in the desert of Jordan, which is where uh, that sequence was shot. So um, we, we do get and we do get to see for the first time that Ray. Chewbacca and BB-8 are part of that action sequence as well. And in the trailer, it appeared as if there were some stormtroopers with jetpacks in that sequence. Uh, so maybe the the First Order and the Knights of Ren are working together to chase down uh, all of our heroes for, um, in, in the name of the First Order. Mm-hmm. Um, Brad, let me ask you this as sort of like a sidebar question. I know we've talked a lot about the Knights of Ren in the past, what has it been, four years or something since uh, since The uh, Force Awakens came out. Um, now that we've seen this photo of the, the Knights of Ren that basically gives us our best look yet at them, what do you make of them and their... I guess, potential importance in this story. Is this something that you're looking forward to? I mean, I'm interested as to what their purpose is, because as we've seen across all of the various Star Wars movies, there are tons of different kinds of stormtroopers to carry out various biddings for the First Order. And I hope that the Knights of Ren just aren't an extension of that. I hope that they offer some you know, unique uh, abilities, whether it's it's force sensitive or like special specialized weapons or something that are unlike anything that, you know, the First Order can even dish out. Um, that I, I just hope that they're a little bit more than henchmen and they have a bigger place sort of at, in, in Kylo Ren's, uh, you know, history as, as a villain um, working with the First Order and that maybe they'll offer a bit more of a challenge for our heroes to deal with because they, they look awesome. Uh, the All of the... They have a variety of different weapons from blades uh, to one has like a, a big blaster mounted on his, their arm, uh, axes and, and all this stuff. They, they kind of look like a cross between uh, Mad Max Fury Road characters and and Sith Lords, which is a pretty cool uh, combination. So I, I'm hoping that they have um, something cool to do in this movie. Yeah, I am so burned out on the concept of the Knights of Ren because of how terrible the internet has been and how the, the speculation machine has been you know driven into overdrive over the past few years. But I feel like based on that photo and hopefully if you're right and they actually have like more to do than just like um for example the praetorian guards in the last jedi which just looked cool but didn't really contribute to the overall plot that much i feel like but this they is had an... the coolest fight scene i mean yeah i love that fight of course but i i think the knights of ren actually have a chance to be for me like the biggest 180 you know the the thing that i was looking forward to the least but actually walk out of the movie um, you know, impressed with the way that that execution uh, came through and, and how those characters uh, appeared and, and, you know, factored into the story. So I hope that that works out well because, you know, as of right now, even even looking at them and, and acknowledging how cool their costumes are and all of that stuff, I'm still just, like, burned out on them as a concept. Jacob, what... I mean, you've, you've edited and, and published probably, I don't know, uh, several dozen articles about the Knights of Ren over the past few years. What do you make of that? 
I just think it's hilarious that their setup is being a big deal, and Force Awakens even mentioned the opening crawl, and then Ryan Johnson did nothing with them at all in his movie, and now they're like back, like J.J. Abrams saying, why didn't you take up this thread I planted for you? Why? And now he's making a big deal. <laughs> I don't really care either way at this point. I'll see how it turns out. I think it's really, really funny that this footnote uh, has reemerged, and they're going to try to make them seem important in the last chapter. <laughs> and then, Brad, there was one other thing that I was hoping you could talk a little bit about. There's a, uh, a video that was associated with, the, that Vanity Fair published that was sort of associated with this cover story. And there was a screenshot that you grabbed from there of Daisy Ridley's Ray standing on uh, an interesting-looking surface. What do you think that says about where this movie could go? Yeah, so the the, the video itself has, has um, that shot of Ray with uh, a prop lightsaber in her hand and the surface she's standing on is a very industrial sort of rusted metal surface as lots of water splashes around her and that that ties in with two uh photos that vanity fair released shot by Andy Leibovitz uh with kylo ren and ray standing in front of each other their lightsabers ignited and drawn as water splashes around them on this same industrial surface and uh it seems as if this is likely a, a tease of what will be a lightsaber battle between them that I'm presuming will happen in the remains of the Death Star that we see uh, at the end of the Rise of Skywalker trailer. Because as we see in that trailer, that huge chunk of the Death Star is lying in the middle of a large body of water. There's waves crashing uh, near the cliffs where the characters are standing. And it would be kind of a cool way to um, bring a little bit of nostalgia by having a lightsaber battle in the remains of the Death Star uh, while also putting them in the middle of an environment that we haven't seen a lightsaber battle take place before with the sort of these waters raging around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm anticipating that there's probably some climactic battle that will happen here uh, on the Death Star once again. That's cool. Yeah, there's I mean, there there's a lot of Star Wars stuff. We, I feel like we touched on most of the big things here, but there are a lot of little details that we didn't get to in this podcast discussion. Is there anything that any of you wrote that um, that made you especially excited that we didn't talk about? Or do you think people should just go to those articles and check them out there? Yeah, just check out the articles. There's a lot of there's a lot of great details here that just dive into everything that we've learned so far from the trailer and putting into context with the new stuff we learned. And it's there's a uh, there's a lot of cool stuff here. All right. I just want to, I just want to talk about uh, real quick a uh, photo that we you can see on Vanity Fair's uh, story of Carrie Russell's character. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to quote a filmmaker from a set visit I have not been allowed to publish yet. So I can't tell you the movie or the director or the character, but this filmmaker said that they des- they designed a character's costume with the intent of if it's if the movie is good people will want to wear that costume as cosplay to conventions for the rest of their lives and i feel like Carrie Russell's bounty hunter uniform is essentially them saying boba fett but for ladies can we make this happen forever and i think that's that makes me chuckle because i love the idea of people building costumes uh, and saying i hope people wear this forever and that's really what it feels like to me i didn't even consider that but i think you're absolutely right <laughs> now that i give it a second look and sort of look at it through that lens um yeah and i, I mean there's been what, like only a couple of female bounty hunters in the entire Star Wars universe depicted thus far, right? So, um, well, eh, no, more, more than that. I mean, well, there, uh, well, it, it depends on like, if you want to talk in the movies. Yes. Elsewhere, there have been a lot more, but like, uh, you know, I, I mean, we had, um, there's a lot more, especially if you look at Star Wars, uh, Rebels and Clone Wars, there's a lot other female bounty hunters and things like that. But in the movies, they are sparse, pretty much only, 
Zam Wessel in Attack of the Clones, and a brief shot of Aura Singh in The Phantom Menace. I have no <laughs> idea who that is, but I will be going to the, the Wikipedia right after this to try to figure it out. Uh, in the meantime, let's move away from Star Wars to the one non-Star Wars related news item that we have today. And that is an update about Christopher Nolan's new movie. So uh, we're going from, from one huge blockbuster to another. Uh, Chris, what do we know about Nolan's film at this point? Uh, we got some uh, several new details. For one thing, it's uh, it's called Tenet now. That's the official title. We didn't have a title before. Announced the title. We also now know it's a spy movie, which really wasn't made clear before, or at the very least, it it's set in the world of international espionage, which you know is a spy movie. Uh, it's also added new cast members: uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson, Kenneth Branagh, Clements Posey, Dimple Cadella, and of course. Michael Caine, who is in every uh, Christopher Nolan movie except Memento and I guess following. So that's the that's the long and short of it. We still don't really know what the hell the plot is going to be. Uh, we do know that Christopher Nolan's go to composer, Hans Zimmer, is not coming back. Instead, uh, Ludwig Göransson, who did Black Panther and Creed, is doing the score, which is is pretty interesting. So it's going to have like a whole new sound to it. Uh, does anybody know what? tenant is is that i i was under the impression that it was tenant with an n but looking at it now it's, it's actually t-e-n-e-t is that even a word does anybody know uh is that somebody's isn't that oh isn't that a word for like a belief or like a you know like a principle or something chris defined it in his article yes oh, i did, did. okay right. well, what does it mean yes well, it means <clears throat> a principle or belief, especially one of the main principles of a religion or philosophy. Now, whether or not that's actually the use of it in this film remains to be seen. I mean, it could be like a character's name for all we know. Okay, I'm looking this up now. Apparently, tenant with an N was the common spelling in the 1600s for the word that you just talked about. So uh, I'm only a few hundred years behind in terms of spelling. So, uh, yeah, okay. Well, that makes a lot more sense then. Um, all right, so uh, does anybody else have anything to say about this Chris Nolan movie? I mean, for me, like, the idea of Nolan being the... Is he the sole writer of this script? Do we know, Chris? Uh, yes, he is. That's correct. Okay. So I think this is the first screenplay that he will have written all by himself since Inception? Yeah. God, I really should have looked this up beforehand. Sorry. Um, I think that's correct. Uh, let me double check this. And no, that, that is not correct. He actually wrote Dunkirk by himself, so I'm, I'm wrong. I was thinking that this might be the first one since Inception, which is, you know, sort of a, an espionage movie of a different type uh, in its own way. And um, But yeah, regardless, I mean, the fact that this is like a, a passion project for him and like a personal thing, um, I, I wasn't crazy about, as crazy about Dunkirk as a lot of people were, but the idea of him getting back into like a, what sounds to be sort of like a, a Bond-esque action-adventure story sounds pretty exciting. Jacob, you were talking earlier about how Nolan has been wanting to do a Bond-style movie for a while, right? Yeah, uh, for as long as I can remember, he's mentioned in interviews about wanting to make a Bond movie and being inspired by Bond movies growing up. But James Bond movies never want a director like Nolan. They they tend to stick toward, uh, you know, dependable, sturdy, workhorse-like directors, which is why the new film being directed by carry Joji Fukunaga is so odd. But anyway, uh, I remember specifically around Inception, no one talking about all the the third layer of the dream with the complex in the snow and the bad guys on skis. He so was very much inspired by his love of Bond films. So as a British filmmaker growing up, you know, watching James Bond movies in England, 
he clearly had that itch he needed to scratch and the idea of him making an action movie you know SP, a worldwide espionage spy movie feels like him really scratching that itch yeah for sure i'm excited about that uh all right so i think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of slash film daily um there are too many of us here to list off where everybody can find us but just go to slashfilm.com. you can actually click all the links in the uh, to the stories that we talked about today in the show notes of this episode uh, slash film daily is published every weekday bringing you the most the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to this show slash film daily on itunes google podcasts over Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and be sure to send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com and leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really does help us out a lot if you just take like two minutes and do that. We would be very grateful. Tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow.